This podcast is hosted by R Double P. If you are easily spooked, creeped, or offended, this might not be the podcast for you. Welcome back. Welcome. It's I Think My Fridge is Haunted. I'm Gemma Lai. And I'm Lana Lunacy. Yay! Yay! She came back. I did. <laughs> How could I not? Oh my gosh. Uh, if you're new here, welcome. If uh, you're not new here, welcome back. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are really thankful that you stuck around in the fridge. In the fridge. And uh, we've got something a little bit uh, different today. I haven't done too many of these, but I do love them. I'm doing a Alien abduction story. <gasps> Aliens. Perfect. <laughs> Alien abduction. <clears throat> yeah. yeah. Now, I have to preface before this. Um, this story took me freaking ages to write because it's there's so many elements to it. And it's very kind of, you know, with alien abduction, there's all this losing time. And then I remembered this and then I remembered that. And it was, it's super confusing. So... Just bear with me. Absolutely. I'm here for the ride. I'm hoping that I tell the story and you just at least get the gist. Um, (laughs) Even better, if you're driving late at night, be prepared to be freaked out. See that light over there? That's an alien. Yeah. (laughs) Have you ever seen a UFO? You you lived in Ballarat. I bet there's loads out there. I mean, it's like beautiful, clear sky out there. Mm. So it's hard to not be like, what's that? What's that? What's Mm. this? Mm I so fun fact about me. One of my favorite movie series of all time is Men in Black. Oh, cool! Man, that's so good. <laughs> and then, like listening to other podcasts about like the real Men in Black, like, right? You just want it to be real. Yes. Like, it's just, yeah. So I, I'm just like. I feel like you're so much more sophisticated than me. At the moment, <laughs> Louis and I are making our way through The Fast and the Furious. Oh, there is nothing wrong with that. <laughs> Which I, we're up to number six and I've, I've now officially re- renamed it The Fast and the Stupid. Because <laughs> they're so dumb. I don't know why I keep on saying let's just. Should we keep going with The Fast and the Stupid? <laughs> they're terrible. I feel like. After like the second movie, they would they were just like, let's just make fun of this whole oh series, I like love overact, just you know, or underact. That's my favorite, yeah. the underacting, where it's clearly like they've just they were joking around in that cut, but they used it. Like. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. It's a terrible series, but I I just keep on making my way through it because the uh, I saw the clip for the the tenth film, and I thought oh, I want right. to see the tenth one. The problem is I haven't seen the first nine. It's like Saw coming out with 10. you gotta, oh. you got to watch all of them to get to the end. Like, I mm. fell off the, the Saw bandwagon a little while ago because, you know, some of those scenes stay with you. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And it, they cater to every single person's Worst ill thing. factor. Yeah. Like you've got to dig out your eye or you're falling in the swimming pool full of syringes. Yeah. It's always the um, Chester Bedingfield in the car and he's got the glue on his back and he has to rip his own skin off. Like, sticks with me. Yeah. Yeah. There's always – the Saw movies have got something for everyone. It really In does. a bad way. you got to think about those writers. It's like, what are you going through to think about, <laughs> like, the creation of that? Yeah. But you know what brought me back was the Jigsaw movie. Oh, Yeah. Yeah, I was like, I, I watched all the Saw movies like ages ago and I tried to keep up to date and I was mm. like, okay, I don't know where this is going because the first one's so iconic. Mm-hmm. What a great it's so twist. Good. Oh my God, it's so good. And I was like, oh yeah, Saw, whatever. And then Jigsaw came out and I was like, oh, I'll go see it. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it's, it, it will never be the first one, but it has the same energy and it just brought me right back to watching that first one. And I was like, brilliant, I'm back on board. We don't talk about Spiral, though. Okay. Which one was that? It was the Chris Rock one where he was the detective. And it's clear, like, Chris Rock is a fan of Saw and he just wanted his own movie. Right. Talking about overacting or underacting. Oh, it's bad. Right. It's real bad. I just yeah. go, oh, just like, let's take, this, let's take this scene again, but just more cardboard. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yep. Or 
as big as you can go, Chris. Right. Go for it. Yeah. Like, and everyone's like, oh, um, okay. I, I'm so convinced that's why they're doing a new Saw film because they're like, we can't finish it with that. That oh, can't be the last Oh, yeah, one. yeah. No, let's just finish it yeah. on our terms. Yeah, yeah. But so have you figured out that film is like my niche like I could talk about it for hours. Well, it's just like even like when we were recording the last episode, and I was like, "Oh, you know, it's hoodwinked," and you were like, "Yes, hoodwinked." Yeah, love that movie. Love it. It's so funny. And you can't find it on any streaming platforms. I've looked. We have the DVD still. Lucky Phil. Lucky. <laughs> Lucky. I had a much younger sister, so I went through all the kids' movies with her, and that one, that one was special. It's really funny. It's so stupid. <laughs> it's awful. I love it. <laughs> but yes, I mean, like, <laughs> Men in Black, I feel like, put me full stop, like, there are, there has to be something out there. Mm-hmm. I don't know if they've come here. I don't know if they've been or gone, or mm-hmm. if they're on their way talking about the, the the documents, the leaked uh, American UFO things recently, like right. alien. Fi- but, like, the universe is so big. Mm. How could they not How could be they not be? Honestly. But, um, yeah. My, one of my favourite movies of life is, um, uh, oh, flipping War of the Worlds. Oh. oh. Yeah. Um, I just, I love it. I love, I love the old like radio version mm-hmm. i love the old music i love the tom cruise version i love the 50s version that's um, awesome i just um yeah it's just it's so great it's terrifying yeah it, it like it's just so terrifying mm. and, and yeah i can understand in so many different versions of it it's yeah it's never not terrifying that's love right that. yeah yeah um no, we could come back to movies oh, yeah. as many times Decide. as you want. <laughs> yes. <Yeah>. Side <laughs> conversations. Yes. Shall we uh, do a fact from the freezer? Yes, please. Facts from the freezer. Facts from the freezer. You want to go first? Um, yes. Okay. Um, and now I just need people to forgive me if any facts are repeated. Um, I tried to get through as many as I could in That's why we seasons. need – so Chris is not here today to supervise, yeah. unfortunately. Uh, so it's highly it's possible because usually if we do double up on a fact, she usually puts her hand up and says no. We've already done that. We've already done that one. She has a list. Oh, love so, that. So um, just just so you know, we're, we're, we are unsupervised. Um, luckily, it's not a full moon. <laughs> unsupervised. I love that. Okay. My fact is about ducklings. Yay! Ducklings can engage in cannibalistic behaviours when they're bored. Well, that took a dark turn. <laughs> You're like, oh, little duck, excuse me, cannibals? What? Wow. What? Oh, like baby bearded dragons. They're like, I'm going to eat your foot. Yep. Yep, why not? I'm bored. Really? Absolutely. So cannibalism can begin in ducks of any age, but ducklings over four weeks old are more prone to develop this vice. The underlying reasons for birds turning to cannibalism are not known. I don't know if you've spoken to a bird lately, but they're not giving a lot of information out. I very regularly yell at the birds in my backyard. Um, I have these mean minor birds that oh. pick on like the native birds. I want to get a super soaker because like, oh. I literally go out there and just yell at them like a psycho. Yeah. I see you. You go get get out get. of my tree. Yeah, well, if they're picking on the other birds, that's not cool. Mm. Can't have that. It's not cool at all. So, uh, not known why t- birds turn to cannibalism, but it is associated with boredom and is aggravated by overcrowding. Wow! So it's like regulating the population. Yeah. My question is how. Those little duck bills. Oh, that's what <laughs> I was thinking. They ain't got fangs. How are they like? Yeah. Me, 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 me. Like, that must be an awful... Those little wings are not holding a two-by-four. No, they're <laughs> not. They're not, like, crushing. They've got a, the feathers and, like, the... I, I don't know whether it's, like, the duckling's already dead or something like that, but if it's overcrowding, that means they're alive and, like... Right, and they're, they're taking care of it. And they're born with these tendencies, like... Birds are evil. Wow, it's always the quiet ones. It's always the quiet, the cute ones, the <sighs> unsuspecting ones. Ah, oh, so there you go. If you see a duckling, you'll be like, <laughs> that's ruined my day. Oh, no. <laughs> powerful little ducklings. <laughs> Tell me. 
So my fact, uh, again, is related to my story. Mm-hmm. So James Fuller Fix was an American who wrote the 1977 best-selling book, The Complete Book of Running. He is credited with helping start America's fitness revolution by popular popularizing the sport. I cannot talk today. <laughs> okay. Popularizing the sport of running and demonstrating the health benefits of regular jogging. He died of a heart attack while jogging at 52 years of age. Oh my god. Random. Oh, the irony. Mm. Oh. Yeah. Apparently like in the 70s and 80s it was just like this boom of I'm going jogging. Jogging? Yeah, jogging. I was just thinking, I was like, wasn't it popular before then? I went, oh, I suppose not. Maybe not. No, I think before then it was all about, like, you know, the strong men and stuff. Yeah, you know, true. The one piece. I think. <laughs> and it just piece. it just went straight from, like, 1900 strong men to 70s jogging. Well, There's nothing in between. Lycra was invented. <laughs> yeah. They were like, I don't want to wear big poofy skirts anymore. I want lycra. And I want to show people I'm wearing lycra. In the park. In the park, everywhere. Wow, died. Mm. Poor guy. So young. Shall we launch into it? This is kind of a long one. Yeah, let's do it. So I apologise in advance and um, I'll probably get confused. I just want to let you know I'm probably going to get confused. That is okay. So today I am going to tell you about the abduction of Terry Lovelace. And um, I... Uh, got my source my sources were terrylovelace.com that ufo podcast which featured a two-part interview with terry and also terry's book which is called incident at devil's den which for extra credit i read twice oh my gosh look at you go (laughs) i have to take a deep breath because this is Mm -hmm. massive like this whole, it's very confusing. Yeah, deep breath in. So let's just begin, not at the beginning, but in 1987. Terry Lovelace began having anxiety attacks when he saw mannequins at the mall. Oh. His wife didn't know how to help him or what was causing the attacks, along with recurring nightmares going back 10 years. One day, Terry had a panic attack at a bookstore when he saw the cover of a book featuring the face of a grey alien. Mm. And I'm going to presume that you know which book, and I'm going to presume that I know the book. It would probably have been Communion. Right. Yes. Of the which time. was a book and then was made into the film with Christopher Walken. Yeah, right. And the, right, right. the, the cover of the, the book and the film was that classic alien Big with eyes. the big eyes and the very small mouth and the, you know. Yeah, the disproportionately large head. Right. Really scary image. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Terry told his wife about an experience he'd had 10 years prior, an experience that was most certainly the cause of his attacks and nightmares. So 10 years earlier in 1977, Terry and his friend Toby went on a camping trip in Arkansas to a place called Devil's Den. Mm. That night, they saw a UFO, triangular and as big as a city block. Matte black finish, brilliantly lit with flashing lights of many colours, and it emitted a low drone. But before we talk about that night in 1977, I want to go back a bit to talk about Terry's life up until that point. So who is Terry Lovelace? So Terry is quite a high achiever. He's previously worked as an assistant attorney general as well as um, as a lawyer, as a prosecutor. Before that, he was an EMT in the US Air Force, which he joined in 1973. He also has an undergraduate degree in psychology and he lives, I believe he lives at the moment in Texas, although he's originally from St. Louis in Missouri. Wow. So he's like, he's a smart guy. He's a smart guy. Ah, Yeah. Very well-read dude. For over 40 years, Terry Lovelace kept his story of alien abduction to himself until an incident in 2012 caused him to think about going public with his story, finally releasing his first book, Incident at Devil's Den, in 2018. Whoa, super recent. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Seeing aliens since childhood... 
The incident at Devil's Den was not a sudden or one-off occurrence in Terry's life, and we often see this with alien abductees. As a child, he remembered feeling like his room was being intruded upon by strange beings as he was trying to sleep. They spoke to him telepathically that they wanted him to come play with them, and they presented themselves as sweet little monkeys. Monkeys. Like cute and um, personable and sweet. And at first he he did think that they were, you know, cute and sweet. Um, But when he protested against going with them, they became angry and he screamed for his parents who presumed that he was suffering recurring night terrors. He also remembered seeing on two occasions flying saucers, including a large, flat, shiny silver uh, flying spacecraft later in childhood that he couldn't explain. So he saw a UFO at age nine and also at age 11. Wow. This flying spacecraft hovered above him as the hair on his arms stood on end, almost like there was like a magnetic uh, reaction in the air or something like that. And it went from stationary to the speed of a bullet in just a second. Whoa, and like not small UFOs, like little, little lights in the sky. These no. Are sitting. No, he, he's, they're visiting him. Oh. Like they're actually very obvious. Yeah. So Terry's parents sent him to a doctor who examined him and asked him about his experiences, but they... Um, The doctor did not believe his story and recommended he stop watching science fiction cartoons. Of course. Which at that time, you know, would have been the 50s. You know, we there were late night science fiction theatre type TV shows. Radio plays. I don't know if that science fiction theatre is an actual show or if it's just in Back to the Future. (laughs) uh, Science theatre (laughs) 3000 or something like that. Something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I see that. So after the panic attacks at the mall, Terry's wife encouraged him to see a therapist to aid him with his anxiety and nightmares. His therapist suggested that he may have suffered a trauma that was triggering his responses. He told her about the two UFO sightings from childhood, but stopped short of telling her about the 1977 experience. Mm. Now, this doctor, like, he, he was not... In the book, he, he was not very receptive to her. He didn't really want to be there. He didn't want to talk about these things. But she she actually uh, recommended to Terry, you know, she said, you don't have to talk to me, but I do recommend that you see a colleague of mine who's a clinical psychologist and they have experience with people that have seen UFOs. Right. Um, That's good of her. Yeah. But... Um, to my knowledge, and Terry never says whether he called them or not. I'm sure if he called them, he would have put it in the book. But mm. I don't think he ever um, went ahead and called them. So in the early 1980s, Terry took up jogging. <laughs> I see. As many people did during that time. He liked the cardiovascular benefits and the endorphin rush. Sometimes after he had run a couple of miles, the area above his knee would become numb. He noticed that there was something underneath the skin. Like on his thigh? Yeah. Like up that Yeah, yeah. yeah. Finally in 2012, his leg became painful, so much so that he fell. His wife took him to the hospital where x-rays were taken. The technician asked, did you suffer a shrapnel wound while you were in the military or have you been in an accident of some kind? And Terry said, no. Um, He said, I used to jog a a lot, but um, I haven't had any injuries. The x-rays showed a strange object under the skin. It was a tiny piece of square metal about the size of a fingernail. And I have seen a photo of it online. It's perfectly square. Right. Like a chip. A doctor examined Terry's leg, but could not find any kind of scar where the metal had entered the leg. The doctor presumed that perhaps the object was the result of a childhood accident. So what they did this test with a black light because scar tissue will glow under a black light, but they couldn't find one because they thought if it's been surgically placed there, Mm. if we put a black light over it, we'll find the entry point. Yes. 
It looked symmetrical and man-made, so they decided it wasn't a random piece of metal. So how did it get there? Terry checked with his sisters to see if he had been in any accidents as a child, but he hadn't. He did not like knowing that there was a foreign object inside his body and not knowing where it came from. Yeah, understandably. Oddly, after checking his medical records, the incident was described as an abnormal knee and did not mention the metallic object. Okay. (laughs) What does that mean? What does that mean? Why? He asked several doctors to remove it, but they decided um, that it, it wasn't it wasn't a necessary surgery, uh, so that the risks outweighed the benefits of removing it. Right? Yeah, I see. So he's kind of stuck with it. Oh, he went online and looked up possible reasons it could be there, and he kept on finding articles referring to alien microchips, and a few other alternatives presented themselves. Mm. It was the final straw. So Terry believes the microchip was implanted just above his knee decades earlier. Yeah. Soon after, the nightmares resumed well into the next couple of years. His dreams seemed to be chronological as if they were memories. However, he never had a full chronological memory of the entire experience, only isolated scenes. And we see this a lot with uh, alien abductees. Yeah. And it all began with a strange sighting he had while at work. While Terry was working as an EMT in the 1970s, he works with a guy called Toby, who is originally from Detroit, Michigan. They both have wives and families and live in houses located on the Whiteman Air Force Base, which is a strategic air command base and was armed at the time with nuclear weapons. They work together as EMTs and their families become close, even having dinner or a barbecue at each other's houses on a weekly basis. And at this time, the, Terry and Toby, they're, they're young. They're like 21, 22. Yeah, yeah. And it's, I guess at that time, you know, you, you were probably, you know, set up, you had a house and you were married and you had kids by that time. And yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, I'm like 21 to be an EMT. That's quite young, but um, then, yeah, yeah. You think about the time in general. Yeah. Um, And also the reason why he joined the military um, was because there was educational benefits. Like you could go to college um, being in the military and things like that. And he wanted to study more. So um, he didn't necessarily get into it to serve his country, but he (laughs) more wanted the benefits. And he he freely admits this in his book. (laughs) Like, I mean, if if it works, it works. Like, I'm sure it worked both ways. (laughs) Exactly. You know, as long as he, you know, carried out the job. Yeah, that's it. On a very cold night at 2 a.m., Toby and Terry are they're at work, they're playing cards. So they used to do like an 11 p.m. to 7 a.m. shift together. Yes. So they're playing cards when they get called out to an incident and they get into the ambulance. They were being dispatched to treat and transport a technician who had fallen while working routine maintenance on a missile. So, you know, routine maintenance and missile usually don't go together. But yeah. <laughs> to each their own. So when they're on the way to um, – so these missiles are kept in these silos. So they're driving through the base towards this silo and they see about 12 emergency vehicles with the lights on um, as they're about five minutes away from their destination and they're like, ooh, what's going on? Because mm. normally 2 o'clock in the morning on the base is extremely quiet. Yeah, you want to hope so. There's no one around. Yeah. Further on, there was a roadblock. They were let through and were on scene soon after. They knew something was wrong to have so many security police officers on site. Terry presumed a deer had tripped a motion detector and Toby thought it was some kind of training exercise. Mm. Neither of them were very worried, but they were more intrigued because they were bored. Yeah, of course. (laughs) Further on down the road... In the driveway leading up to a missile silo were a bunch more security vehicles and men, they were either running around or they were crouched down by the vehicle. 
Oh, so like classic, like sci-fi movie, military. Come out. Like, <laughs> put your hands up. No one's police. Like, <laughs> everyone's running in all different directions. There's no order. Like like a military. <laughs> <laughs> That's what they do. <laughs> it reminds me of the Wayne's World too. Like we're just uh, carrying these watermelons across the road. <laughs> it's maybe that energy, isn't it? Was it watermelons or was it the glass, oh, the glass. or something? I don't know. Just taking this paint of glass across yeah. the street. <laughs> You're like, <laughs> they're all extras. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So further on down the road, they, they see the security vehicles. There's people everywhere. And um, some people were just sort of staring at something. And Toby says, this is no training exercise. And Terry's like, yeah. Um, so Terry wanted to find someone in charge so he could find the injured technician. Like they'd been called out because someone, you know, needed medical help. Mm. Um, he finds a captain talking into a walkie-talkie and Terry is directed to drive the ambulance off to the side near the silo. Um, but he said, don't get out of the vehicle. No one goes in there. No one comes out. Oh my God, this is a, like a movie. Oh, yeah. There are four guys with rifles guarding the gate to the silo. Even though the captain tells them to stay in the ambulance, Toby, well, he's very curious and he decides to sneak out to see what's going on. After 10 minutes, Toby runs back, telling Terry he's got to get out and see this. Terry gets out and he sees the captain looking up in wonder. Terry looks up too and can't believe what he's seeing. It's a black diamond-shaped object and it's hovering in mid-air above the missile silo it has a matte surface and it's about the size of a van there were no engines or propellers no one knows what they're looking at and it suddenly just takes off and it's out of sight in less than like a second oh my god in that like it's just like imagine that. Imagine seeing that, especially at that time. Pretty cool. Pretty, pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> so after this, the um, the men, like whether they're captains or whether they're EMTs or whether they're security guards, they're all extremely excited and confused. Um, and there's kind of just chaos. Like everyone's like, did you see that? Did you see that? And after they tend, they, they finally tend to this technician that had fallen in. He'd broken his ankle. And they're told to stay off the radio in the ambulance. And they're also told to write, quotation marks, a clean report. Their commanding officer asked them to limit their report to the patient only. And when he checked their reports, he blacked out the times mentioned and made copies of them. He told them the object was an experimental helicopter and it was a secret prototype but terry didn't believe him Mm. (laughs) Mm. and in the book he kind of makes out like no one in the group believed him like i don't think he even believed in any case they're told don't talk about this and terry and toby tell everyone (laughs) in their close circle (laughs) suspicious here they're so excited they're just like you never guess what we saw but like yeah. you know we're not supposed to talk about this but we saw this diamond shaped thing and it was flying and blah 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 terry is just intrigued by this and and toby's intrigued as well because toby loves space and terry is just intrigued because he 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 did not recognize any kind of technology that this was and he's also intrigued because it didn't look like a flying saucer you know like from the, you know war of the world and like war of the worlds or anything like that like what what we know ufos to yeah be. so toby and terry concluded that it must have been soviet of course <laughs> but of course <laughs> when in doubt soviet yeah <laughs> terry says in his book that many commercial and military pilots are aware of ufo sightings and that they're often seen near nuclear power plants and also military bases. That makes sense. So a weird thing happens after they see this black thing. In the days after that experience, Toby asked Terry a strange question. He said, do you want to go camping? <laughs> see the, the suspicion wash over my face? Yeah. <laughs> 
Uh, Terry thought it was crazy because they were both city people. They didn't know anything about camping. Um, but Terry agreed, mentioning that at least most campgrounds had bathrooms and running water. But Toby wanted the full camping experience out in the wilderness without any other campers around them getting in the way of the serenity. Toby was really into space and he wanted to go to a place that was remote enough that he could see the stars really clearly and where Terry, who was an amateur photographer, could take some photos of wildlife and the landscape, that that type of thing. A likely story. Yeah. (laughs) Terry liked this idea and Toby said he'd heard about a great spot called Devil's Den State Park in northwest Arkansas which was just a few hours – is it south or north? I did look at the map. I think Where it's south. They? Where are they? So they're in Missouri. Mm. And Arkansas, I believe, is – I thought Arkansas was above Missouri. I'm scared to say. <laughs> it's the next state. <laughs> it's the next state over. It's the next – so um, the only problem was it, it was really, really cold. So they decided let's wait a few weeks until June because it would be much warmer. And then we'll drive over and we'll set up camp for a few days and see how we go. So in the lead up, they were uncharacteristically excited about this trip. Neither of them were big campers, but they became almost obsessed with this prospect of going to this location and hiking, taking photos and just enjoying the scenery. They bought a small two-man tent and packed a few supplies, including military-issued bug repellent and sunscreen. I want sunscreen. <laughs> military they, issue. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they, like, read a book about camping, you know, things like that, and they just became, like, super excited about this trip. Of course. So Devil's Den National Park in northwest Arkansas um, – features a beautiful yet inhospitable landscape. A stagecoach line ran through it from 1857 to 1861 from St. Louis um, and Memphis to California. Battles were fought there in the Civil War. Um, There is also a history of missing people at Devil's Den and there is a feeling that's reported of being watched while you're on the trails. Mm. So have you ever heard of Missing 411? Missing 411. It's a... It's not that map, is it, of America? No, it's... Basically, it's kind of code for people that go missing in state forests. Right. It's a whole thing. Cool. Yeah, Uh, which I will cover at some point. Of course. It's on my (laughs) list, um, but there's so many books and documentaries about it. You know, I've got to do the research. Yeah, you could be searching for hours. Yeah. Days. Weeks. Yeah. <laughs> so, Cato and Kahino tribes believe that the area is cursed, and they only ever used it to get from one place to another. They never stopped to hunt or fish or camp. Uh, interestingly, Terry said that um, when he was on that UFO podcast, he said there have never been any historical artifacts such as tools in that area that have been found, suggesting that First Nation people really did avoid it. Mm, Okay. There are instances uh, of what is known as missing 411 in this area, which is the phenomenon of missing people in state forests and national parks going back decades. And they're often just never found. Yeah. So there's a place uh, in this area called the Butterfield Trail, which is a popular hiking trail Mm. in august 2017 a 37 year old man from oklahoma went missing Uh, he was on a hiking trip his name was rodney letterman and he decided to rest at the campsite um, because he was tired when his companions returned to the campsite all that remained was his mobile phone no trace of the fan the man was found although a large-scale search was launched finally In 2019, this is weird, a couple of hikers found a diamond-shaped object on top of a log at the side of the trail. And it was really obvious, like it was Mm. just sitting there. And the woman thought it was an albino turtle, but they went closer to it 
It's actually a section of Rodney's skull. What? And it looked like it had been placed there purposefully. No other trace of Rodney was ever found. No other bones, no clothing, nothing. So diamond-shaped as in it was like it happened to be that shape or it had been cut to that shape? I think the way that the skull is... is yeah, sections. It, it, and there is sections that fuse together, you know, yeah. in early life. Yes. And I think that if those parts sort of break apart, they naturally become like a diamond shape. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm obviously I'm picturing something like that's clean cut and yeah. like clean skull, obviously. Yeah. But how strange. Really Never odd. seen again. The rest of him. What? And why was it placed there like that? Yeah. Really, really bizarre. Very. In June of 1946, a family from Pittsburgh, their, the Van Ost family, they were camping in the area when eight-year-old Catherine Van Ost vanished from the fam- family's campsite. After a whole week, she walked out of a cave in her swimsuit, a 20-mile trek from her campsite answering the call of one of the searchers. The area had been searched twice already, so it was very odd, and the man who rescued her said she was eerily calm, and her mother said she was utterly serene. She was hydrated just fine, and she only had a few mosquito bites. you say 80 years old? She was... How old was this woman? No, 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 no. She was eight. She was a little girl. Oh, big eight, pie. eight. I thought you said 80 years old. I was like, <laughs> damn, she's camping at eight years old. No, she's little. Um, Still, like... And she was gone for a week in the wilderness. It. And they... Yeah. Oh, my God. And, I mean, we've got bears, wolves. Dehydration. Dehydration. Like, we've like, got the elements. She didn't have a swimsuit. Like, surely she would have been frozen or, or yeah mosquitoes you said so hot like weird weird very very strange so that's just a little bit of a sort of a background on the area where they're going so he was like this is a great place to go yeah <laughs> totally when the time came for the trip they um they said goodbye to their wives and they drove hours north to devil's den state park now, I've confused myself here because I've written they've driven south and they've driven north. Let's just say they've driven. They've driven. Because <laughs> I need to look at the map again yeah. because American geography is not my forte. Yes. <laughs> On the way through the forest, they see signs that say government land, do not enter. Okay. But they continue anyway. Of course. They find this amazing meadow and decide that's where they're going to set up camp. But they decide... First, they want to do a hike and then set up camp later. On the hike, Terry realises he's forgotten to bring his camera Uh. and he's, like, super annoyed. After a couple of hours hiking, a really weird thing happens. Both Toby and Terry, while on their hike, become exhausted and just fall asleep. Just fall asleep? Right. Really odd. When they wake up, it's hours later and they're starting to panic because they haven't set up their campsite yet. And they just thought, we've driven a long way, we hiked, we were really tired, we just both fell asleep. Mm -hmm. I think it's a bit weird. Mm, Yeah. Later, they're sitting around their campfire next to the small tent that they've managed to set up and they've had some dinner, they're having a great time, when suddenly the forest just goes silent. That's not what you want. No. No bugs, no birds, no frogs. No wind through the trees. Nothing. They look up and above the trees on the horizon, they see three lights in a triangle shape. It turns around as if the triangle of lights... Well, first, it turns out as if it's on an axis. So the triangle remains perfect. Right. Like that. Spinning. Spinning. And then it turns towards them. Okay, so flat purple. Like flat. Yes. Yes. It turns downward as if the triangle of lights is heading towards them and they see that it, it it's a ship that looks like basically a flying building. It's huge and it hovers above the meadow. Oh, God. Terry says it's enormous. Um, he likened it to something like a flying... 
he said something like a hospital or a clinic or something like that. It was just like huge. Um, as they are sitting there watching this thing, the ship is above them and a milky beam comes down onto the campfire. Then a red laser starts like scanning them. Oh my god. <laughs> I'm just like so shocked by that. My face is going crazy. I don't sound like it. <laughs> Gemma can see my face like, what? Huh? This laser is like scanning them and also like it scans their chests. Um, and then it goes to their belongings one by one. It, it goes to, like it's looking at things like tent, backpack, campfire, person, another person, mm-hmm. you know, um, plate. Yeah. <laughs> not, especially with two guys who are in the military, you do not want to see a red light. Scanning. No, no. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So they're watching. They're like, what is going on? The ship leaves soon after and the men can't believe what they've seen. But again, they become just extremely tired. They manage to just stagger back to the tent and they fall straight asleep on their air mattresses. Soon after, this is where it starts to get a bit confusing because Mm -hmm. the time starts to jump back forth, back forth. Yeah. Terry wakes up soon after and the tent is surrounded by yellow lights and they're pulsating, but they're not pulsating like evenly. They're like at um, really odd intervals, if that makes any sense, like fast, fast, slow, fast, slow, fast, fast, slow. You know, it's just like um, Like it doesn't have like a steady rhythm to it. There's no pattern. Right. Yeah. Uh, he, He knows it's just before dawn. And Terry asks Toby what's going on. And Toby is scared out of his mind and he's crying. Oh, of course. Terry looks outside the tent like he's peeping and he sees small beings walking in groups of two and three around the meadow and around the trees surrounding. Before he knows it, they're back in their car, abandoning all their belongings and they're fleeing in fright. Oh, my. So Terry is driving, but he has terrible directions. So Toby manages to direct them to the main road before falling asleep in a fetal position. The sun is burning Terry's eyes and he feels incredibly thirsty. He also has a fever. They both feel just really, really sick. And their skin, it's like they've got sunburn. Mm. And Toby's eyes are so swollen that they're swollen shut. <gasps> oh my god! They have injuries to their eyes that are similar to what you might get from like welding without a protective mask. So long exposure to very bright lights. Yeah, yeah. Toby sleeps most of the way. They stop at a gas station and they get drinks. And Terry goes to the bathroom and he sees marks all over his body as if he's got smallpox. Um, He seemed to be sunburned all over. But the weird thing is there was no tan lines. Oh, so his whole body. His whole body, like even the soles of his feet. (gasps) He says in the book it's as if he was cooked on all sides like a rotisserie chicken. (laughs) It's not funny, but it is. Yeah. Terry feels an odd sense of, this is really strange. He starts to feel a really odd sense of disregard for Toby. And they're best mates. Yeah. He starts to think to himself, because they're both so thirsty. He thinks, I could drink all the soda and leave none for Toby. Like, they have this weird... Apathy. Yeah. 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 After a few hours of driving, an exhausted Terry finally drops Toby off home. Terry's wife is surprised to hear him come home so soon and when she sees his burning skin, she takes him straight to hospital and they test Terry for radiation sickness. They confiscate his clothing and his truck. Yeah, that's a good, like, assumption. Yeah. A major comes into his room and even though Terry's eyes are photosensitive since the incident, this major turns on the light and he interrogates Terry. Damn. Yeah, he's that guy. Yeah, yeah. He asks him what they saw, where the camera film is, and why they went to government land. 
this guy ends up tailing Terry and watching his every move for like weeks, like maybe even months after this. So what happens next is that Terry's truck is delivered back to him after, you know, a few days. And it's, he says it's as clean as when he first bought it from the car yard. So it's been completely detailed. Whoa. <laughs> Thanks, military. <laughs> <laughs> Terry is told to take a series of pills over the course of nine days, even with a nurse coming to the house to check that he'd taken them. In the first couple of days, Terry feels weird and his, his memory is becoming really foggy. So what he does is he flushes the pills like every day the amount that he's supposed to have taken and he tells her that he's taken them. And as soon as he stops taking them, he starts to feel better. Right. So, you know, they're trying to... Red pill, blue pill, him. I was thinking more the the flashing light that men in black have, (gasps) but with a pill. The the neuralizer. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, very that. (laughs) Look into this, please. (laughs) Um, so Terry wonders if Toby had been told to, t- to take the pills as well, but he'd been forbidden to make t- contact with Toby. But one day he he just has so many questions, so he stops by his house. And Toby's wife is angry and tells him to leave. But he does see Toby one time, one last time. He Toby comes to the door. He comes to the door and he's he just doesn't look himself. He doesn't look very well presented and Toby's... Yeah, he always looks really well presented and he smells of alcohol. Uh, Toby asks Terry if what they saw was real. Terry says yes. And then Toby's wife tells him to leave. Um, after that, Toby is sent to Japan for work and Terry never sees him again. But years later, Terry hears that Toby has died while living on the streets of Detroit, suffering from addiction. Whoa. Terry, after he saw Toby at his house, receives a call from the major as soon as he returns home. And they say they've been watching him. They know he's disobeyed a direct order not to see Toby. uh, And they ask to see Terry. And he's taken to a building where he's made to wait for several hours before being taken into a room and introduced to a doctor who suggests he hypnotise Terry to see if they can remember what happened at Devil's Den. The whole time they're they're obsessed that he's got photos. Yeah. He doesn't have any photos, but they are obsessed with this notion. Like, give us the film, give us the film. Yeah, give us the evidence. Yes. So during the hypnosis session... Terry tries to resist, but they give him... And I should have written down the name of the drug. I'm really sorry I didn't. Um, But they gave him an injection of a drug that allows him to regress while pretending to be hypnotised. So they've kind of given him a bit of a double whammy. Like, we'll hypnotise you and we'll give you this, like, kind of truth serum stuff as well. Yeah, yeah. So even though he uh, resists the hypnosis process, he still regresses anyway. Yes. He can hear everything that is said within the room. Even when the doctor mentions at one point he's under, he was under by the count of three. (laughs) However, he was able at this point to remember many scenes from that night and what happened after they saw the three stars, the milky coloured beam and the red laser. I like the edge of my seat. (laughs) (laughs) And then he remembers... Being inside the ship. It's even larger on the inside than what it appears to be on the outside. So we've got a bit of a TARDIS situation. I love a good TARDIS situation. (laughs) And he can see lots of levels above them. Everything inside there is either white or silver or grey. And there are three small spacecrafts parked inside he sees a lot of little grey aliens rushing around. You know, basically those, you know, the aliens. aliens. Everyone knows what aliens looks like. Big guys, little guys, <laughs> um, three and fingers. Maybe? Maybe. maybe. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so he sees lots of little grey aliens rushing around and they appear to be just very busy. There's a machine that looks like a golf cart transporting greys across the ship. Although it glides because it has no wheels. 
Mm. At this point, Terry realises he's paralysed. He can only move his eyes. Oh, that's awful. He sees a tall grey alien about six feet tall. So the little ones are only about three to four feet. Mm -hmm. And there's this one alien that's six feet tall wearing a grey uniform. He seems to have authority over the smaller greys. And Terry gets the impression that the smaller greys, who are about three feet tall, aren't so much sentient as perhaps robotic. So it's almost like maybe they're brainwashed, maybe they're maybe they are robots, who knows? Or maybe they're more like, you know, in the Dark Crystal when they have like the slaves, like they take their essence and they're just kind of like hypnotized slaves. Yeah, I was thinking, okay. Nerd alert, but like Halo, where they've got the little grunts, like they're they're there for a purpose. That's so, their yeah, own yeah, like little like, worker bees. Yeah, yeah. So Terry and Toby, he can sort of see off the periphery that Toby is standing next to each other, and they're both holding their clothes and boots. Terry can see lots of other humans who appear to be very upset and panicked, like. The golf carts without any wheels, the greys seem to be able to wheel or float Terry and Toby away without them walking. So, <laughs> like like a like a gurney style, or just floating them? Yeah, like like push them and they just sort of float to wherever they need to go. Pretty weird. Toby is first taken to another room where Terry can hear him screaming. Terry is taken into a room where he is placed on a table and examined by a large creature that looks like a praying mantis. (gasps) He can see what he describes as lots of fish tanks around him of all different sizes with what look like embryos inside. And one, he, he fixates on this one that he says looks like a puppy and he sees it opening its eyes in the tank. So it's almost like they're experimenting or they're growing things, living things in these tanks. Yeah, giving it a a space to, like, a test tube. Yeah. Embryos. Yeah, Yeah. right. So the aliens do something to his lower back that is extremely painful. He doesn't know what they do to him, but it, it hurts. Terry is screaming, Although he can't open his mouth, so he's sort of screaming, like, through his teeth, really. The mantis creature tells him to stop screaming and that he knows they always take him back afterwards. What? Suggesting that Terry's been here before. Oh, this poor guy. So this mantis creature, he's a bit sort of agitated that Terry is screaming and, you know, he's, you know... Disrupting the process, I suppose. So he puts his insect finger on Terry's forehead and Terry blacks out. The next thing he remembers is waking up in the meadow and thinking they've made a mistake, they've put me in the wrong place. And as soon as he has this thought, the greys rush over, pick him up and put him into his tent where he blacks out again. Right. It's bizarre. It's so bizarre. I think, like, I get very into stories Mm. you're telling me this and i'm there i'm there i'm so involved like i'm not even thinking if this is real or not i'm just like this is his experience my favorite thing is when people say um i was listening to your podcast and i was driving and it was really late at night and i was so scared that's my favorite thing are you scared (laughs) good are you driving on the freeway at 11 o'clock yeah perfect i'm in a room with a light on and i'm scared yeah (laughs) yeah Is it chilly in here or am I just freaked out? (laughs) So he's been thrown back into the tent and he's blacked out again and he wakes up and the tent is surrounded by yellow flashing lights. Okay, all right. So we've come full circle. Yep, seeing the timeline. I like it. Right. He thinks he's just been asleep since they left the campfire, but he can't remember what's happened in between. He's, he notices that his clothing feels odd. His socks are on sideways and his boots aren't laced up and he likes them laced up tight all the time. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, Toby is scared out of his mind. He's saying, Toby, what's going on? He's very upset. Terry opens the tent canvas a little and he sees what he thinks are little children walking around the woods in groups of two and three. Toby tells him they aren't children 
they took us. They took you first. Then they took both of us. So Toby's rem- he remembers. Yes. Ooh. I think Toby was more traumatised than this, even than Terry was. It sounds like, mm. from from what we know where he's going to end up, Yeah, he remembers. And the fact that he answered the door, he came to the door and said, Terry, did it really happen, suggests to me that he also stopped taking the pills. Yeah. Especially if he's smelling like booze. Like, that's, that's some self-medicating. Right. So they watch the ship hovering above and it puts down a beam of light and the small groups of greys make their way over to the light and one by one they dissolve into it. The way he describes it in the book is that they pixelate. Yes. So they sort of, yeah, they go into it and they just sort of pixelate away. Yeah. So it doesn't take them up, it just makes it disappear and they go back into the ship. Yeah, I was going to say, it's not like the cow floating up. Like, no, sure it is. It's <laughs> dissipating. So um, they're all beamed back into the ship, which then rises up and disappears into the sky. Like many abductees, Terry has been visited at home by a man in black. Only Terry's man in black is a very small woman. She's not like your regular... Men in black that we sort of... It's not Will Smith. It's no. Not Tommy Lee Jones. <laughs> There's no sunglasses. All that. Um, he recalls meeting her in several flashbacks and found her comforting, even though once when he hugged her, and I think his flashbacks go back de- like years. Yes. Years. Once he hugged her and he was shocked to find that her body did not seem to be human when he hugged her. So it's almost like a glamour. Like, she looks like a human person, Um, but but feels different. Yeah, maybe it's just her face that she's changed. Maybe she's, like, got, like, a lizard body and she's just put, like, a frilly blouse (laughs) over it. it. Okay, okay, yeah, yeah. A little scarf. Yeah. Brooch. It's off the time. (laughs) Red nails, hello. (laughs) (laughs) She told him not to tell his story and that her hosts would not approve. She keeps referring to her hosts. So we don't know whether she's like an intermediary figure between aliens and abductees. We don't know. Is she affiliated with the government? Is she actually alien in origin? Is she a hybrid? Yeah. Is she a spokesperson? But she's almost – she's sent to Terry to comfort him. Yeah. Yeah. But to make sure that he's not telling – Yes. Hmm. Yeah. After the incident, the airbase didn't know what to do with Terry. They had him doing strange and meaningless jobs just to keep him busy and to keep him within their radar. So there is this really weird part in the book where he's told to spray paint all these planks of wood and then when he's finished, it takes him like days and days and days, and then when he's finished, they say, okay, send them back. (gasps) Come on, what's the goal? Why? So finally he's just told, look, go back to school, get a new career. Just move on with your life. <laughs> just get out of here. With so you. he studied law and he started his own law practice. Um, in the 90s, Terry had – okay, so this is a whole part of the book that takes up like a whole chapter, but I'm really paraphrasing it. Mm-hmm. In the 90s, Terry had a blurry photo given to him by a prospective client who believed the aliens were flashing lights into her windows at night and she wanted to take legal action against them. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> you do. Like, what? No. Although the object in the picture was just a blur, Terry often wondered if the woman who had been hospitalised within the following months after meeting him had in fact seen a UFO. He kept the photo in an envelope in his desk. Now, oddly, his office was broken into later that year and the only thing he found missing was the photo. The photo, come on. And it actually took him like a year to realise it was taken. Well, yeah, I suppose if like you'd assume other things would have been taken. 
Yeah, not so he, looking the, for that. the office was broken into. He checked everything. He looked in the drawer, but he didn't look in the envelope. Yeah. And then finally, like a year later, he thought, oh, I'm going to take another look at that photo. And that's when he realised it was gone. And he thought back when the office was broken into. Yeah. That must have been when it happened. So over the course of 40 years, Terry buried the memories of what happened at Devil's Den, although he was plagued by occasional nightmares. He documented all of his memories and dreams in a series of notebooks to help him deal with that. He also made sketches. On one morning, he even had an experience of missing time while taking a Sunday morning motorcycle ride. He lost a couple of hours and could not account for them. He likened this experience to the story of Betty and Barney Hill, who, have you heard of that case? Uh, Not off the top of my Um, head. In 1961, they lost three hours while on a road trip in New Hampshire and later claimed to have been abducted by aliens. Right. I'll cover the story at some point. It's it's a really famous alien case. For someone who loves aliens so much, I know so little. I'm surprised you don't know about that case. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I got to know. I'll tell it to you. Please. So Terry has since written two books. So the first one was Incident at Devil's Den. Mm -hmm. And then he wrote another one called Devil's Den, The Reckoning, which is a follow-up. So The Reckoning features about 30 cases told to Terry by other abductees, compiled from thousands of cases sent to him. Wow. And he's also written another book more recently, which is not related to those cases. It's called Freefall. And it's about, uh, yeah, near-death experiences. So Yeah, I feel like I've heard about that. Oh, yeah? Yeah, because his name is very familiar to me. Um, I think I've heard his name before. Um, but more recent, like, last ten years, like last five or... Well, yeah, he's only sort of popped up onto the radar. 2018. Yeah, you said 2018. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. I love that he's telling other people's stories as well. That's great. Yeah. So basically he's just since then he's been compiling other people's experiences and he's just logging all of the details and all of the similarities and those types of things. So uh, if you're after any of his books, you can get them on his website, terrylovelace.com. I've got his books on Audible. Oh, great. He reads his own books as well narrates them that's awesome and that is terry lovelace's alien abductee story wow one last thing though he says there is a strange thing about the meadow at devil's den Mm. if you find it on google maps apparently you can see it on google maps it's kept really tidy and mowed yes even though it's like really remote so someone gets paid to go into this remote meadow that no one's supposed to go to because mm. there's signs saying don't go here and keep it neatly mowed. And give it a garden. What's Why? up with that? <laughs> what is up with that? And that's still to this day. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. What's really random. On? Like, I think I took a screen grab of it to show you if I can find it. Yeah. It's so hard to deny, isn't it? Oh, Wow. It's like the shape of Tasmania. It is. With a little, like, a, like almost like a line of trees from the left. It's And it's so obvious. Yeah. That's like Sunday morning mowing, like, and the rest is so It's thick. really neat and tidy, and why? Why? Look, I don't want to put it's my tinfoil hat on, but... Isn't it hard to deny sometimes and, like, government involvement and all that kind of stuff? Like, with that that recent newscasting of aliens were real, like, that the one guy from the government coming forward and being like, oh, yeah, they're absolutely real. Everyone went, yeah, all right. Do you know, I, I stopped reading those articles a little while back because every time they say, oh, the information is going to be declassified yeah. from NASA or from Area 51 or whatever, I, I don't even read them anymore because it, there's never any conclusive evidence of anything. No, and it always feels like a distraction. It always pops up mm. when something else is going on. They're like, ooh, look, aliens. And it's like, no. But hearing... First-hand encounters, people's actual stories like Terry's is just fascinating. Yep. Oh, man. Mm. I'm so glad he's 
made this into something positive almost in a way like he's able to help other people come forward and say hey this happened to me yeah and he and you know people like him that have these high profile jobs like apparently he had people calling him going what are you doing this is crazy Mm. your your reputation is shot but you know he did it anyway because he knows that there are other people going through very similar things too and something so vivid like and physical his body Mm. Uh, you, you hear like all the typical kind of alien things, but a oh, full body rotisserie chicken sunburn. Like, how's that happening? Mm. Like, well, it's yeah. unless you're uh, unless you you have contact with that much radiation, which I would presume that an alien spacecraft would have. Mm. I mean, either way, there's aliens. <laughs> yeah, either way. Oh my god, I'm so glad he decided to share that story. Yeah, it's a great book. Yeah, it's, it's a complicated book, but it's a great book. And he puts, I mean, it's you read it for a good four or five hours until he he gets to the actual incident because there's so much context. Yes, that he puts into place first. Yeah, it's so interesting. I'll have mm. to pick it up. It's a good one. Pick up that book. It's a good book. It's well, good I book. think you did a great job. Oh, thank you. I had visions of it just going terribly wrong because um I um I was like how do I put this into a story when it's so there's so much like timeline differentiation. Yeah, no. But it, it worked. Perfectly. <laughs> it was so like really understandable. I I I think you did a wonderful job. We're all clapping in our cars as we drive 11 o'clock at night. Don't clap. <laughs> Hands on the wheel, 10 and 2. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for coming back. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Thank you for telling me this wonderful story. Aww. I love it. I love being here. Do you want to take us out? I would love for you to start it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm so sorry, my friend. As always, everybody, join us online um, on Instagram. That's our favorite thing. Absolutely. Uh, I think my fridge is haunted. And um, tell your friends. Tell if your friends. you've got friends that are spooky bitches too. Yeah. Um, ask your friends if they've got an alien experience. Yeah, totally. It's a good icebreaker. Yeah, or write to us. Write to us your experience and then we can read it out and then we can get real scared together. Yeah, that would be wonderful to hear from you. That would be wonderful. Until that time, be creepy. But don't be a creep. Woo!